Our Father, you are holy, holy, holy. We thank you as well that you are merciful and gracious because no one could stand in your presence apart from your mercy and graciousness, apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross because we are sinful while you're holy. But Lord, we thank you that you welcome us into your presence with open arms. I pray that today as we open the scripture that you will give us fresh knowledge, fresh insights, and a fresh readiness to come into your presence. Lord, we thank you for your grace. I pray that your grace will come alive to us in fresh ways this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the past few decades, the number of Christians in China has been skyrocketing. Now, I know that many people are getting concerned about the future of Christianity here in America or in Europe, but when we look at other parts of the world, it is flourishing, which is a great thing. It's something to celebrate. In China, there are somewhere in the range of 70 to 80 million Christians, which is particularly remarkable when you consider the fact that the Chinese government routinely and systematically restricts and persecutes Christians. Now I want to share with you something interesting I found out recently about something that's taking place in China regarding the government and Christianity. Did you know that a couple of years ago the Chinese government authorized a textbook to be used in Chinese high schools that includes a story about Jesus. I'm serious. It does. It's a textbook for ethics sponsored by the Chinese government that uses an example of Jesus from John chapter 8. In the Bible, John chapter 8 tells of a woman who is caught in adultery. And there are Jewish leaders who drag that woman in front of Jesus and say to Jesus, Jesus, what do you think we should do with this woman? Because the Jewish law says that she should be stoned to death because of her adultery. Jesus, what do you think we should do? What they were trying to do was to trap Jesus. In John chapter 8, we read that Jesus then kneels down and he writes something with his finger in the dirt on the ground. We don't know exactly what it was. Perhaps it was a list of sins. Then he speaks to those Jewish leaders and said, whichever of you is without sin should be the first one to cast a stone at her. And he knelt down again and kept writing in the dirt. And it says that one by one, those Jewish leaders walked away. They left to the point they were, where there were none of them left there with this woman and with Jesus. And when there was only the woman and Jesus left there, Jesus said to her, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then Jesus responded, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. I mean, it's such a beautiful account of Jesus' mercy. And the story is in a Chinese textbook on ethics, albeit with a twist. The textbook changes the ending of the story. In the revised version, when Jesus is asked, what should we do with this woman? Jesus says, well, the law must be upheld. It must be enforced. And so this textbook shows Jesus picking up some rocks and throwing them at the woman and stoning her to death himself. It's such a different message than what you get in the Bible, isn't it? I mean, this convey, conveys 
Only cold hard justice. Gone are the mercy and the grace that Jesus so often shows. And what I just shared illustrates the contrast that we are looking at today. The contrast between condemnation versus mercy. Fear versus freedom. Old covenant versus new covenant. Mosaic law versus gospel. Legalism versus grace. I invite you to turn in the Bible this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. If you did not bring a Bible but would like to follow along in one, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 1,213. Now the main point of today's passage is to reject legalism because Jesus is better. Reject legalism because Jesus is better. Now legalism is the belief that to please God, we need to follow a certain set of rules and laws. Legalism focuses on a list of do's and don'ts. And in ancient Israel, this list of do's and don'ts came largely from the Jewish laws recorded in the Old Testament. But also Jews tended to add a lot of extra rules that were not in the Bible. Legalism has persisted down through the centuries since the early church. In many American churches, for instance, in the 1950s and 60s, legalism played out in terms of, well, don't smoke, or chew, or go with, with girls who do. And then they added to it things like, you know, don't play cards, don't go to movies, don't listen to rock and roll, women don't wear your dresses too short, and men don't wear your hair too long. There were rules like these that determined in people's minds which were the good Christians and which were not. This is legalism. And throughout church history, Christians have been drawn over and over to legalism. But we need to reject legalism because Jesus is better. Now, as we talk about legalism, I want to start by going back to when the Jewish law was originally given. It'll provide a context for us as we turn to Hebrews in a few minutes. I'm going to read for us Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 through 20. It says that the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No one shall touch that person, but he shall be stoned or shot with arrows. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And this was just reference to abstaining from sex as a part of consecration. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out, to the, out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And while Moses was up there on the mountain, he received the Ten Commandments as well as the rest of the Jewish law. And this passage shows that God's law produces fear, exclusion, and death. I mean, the imagery used here in this passage is arresting as it talks about thunder and lightning, thick clouds, smoke, fire, earthquakes, and loud trumpet blasts from the sky. And it says that people were trembling in fear. And access to God was prohibited except for Moses. And this all shows that God's law produces fear, exclusion, and even death. So with that backdrop now, I want to turn us over to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. Today's passage could be called A Tale of Two Mountains. A Tale of Two Mountains. Let's look at Hebrews 12, verses 19 through 24. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, that even if a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we are presented here with two mountains, representing two ways of approaching God. The first mountain is Mount Sinai. Now Mount Sinai is a real mountain on which Israel received the law. It represents the old covenant that produced fear, exclusion, and death. And if we turn to legalism, we turn to Mount Sinai. Now imagine that you could hear parallels between the Exodus passage I read earlier and the Hebrews passage about Mount Sinai. I mean, you hear echoes of fire and darkness, gloom, tempest, trumpet blasts, trembling. No access to God and the threat of death. Yet in verse 19, the author says, You have not come to Mount Sinai. Now the author here in Hebrews is writing to Christians. These are Jewish Christians who had a strong Jewish background. So they knew all about Mount Sinai. They knew all about the Old Covenant. But he's essentially saying that because of your faith in Christ, you are coming to a new covenant, to a different mountain that's represented in Mount Zion. It says in verses 22 and 23, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I want to just pause here for a moment. Back when I was in seventh grade, I was in a confirmation class at my church. It was a small class, just me and the pastor. 
Now, there were three main things I remember about that particular class. One of the things is that I brought with me my King James Bible that I received as an infant. It's one of those really cool Bibles that has a zipper on it. And like all King James translations, it's full of these and thous. And the pastor recognized I was struggling to understand this Bible. So quickly in the class, he gave me an NIV translation of the Bible to help me have a better chance of understanding what I was reading. And so that was a very good thing. Now, a second thing I remember about that class is that I went to it after school. So I walked from school to the church. It was about 10 blocks. And I remember one specific assignment from that class. I actually don't remember if I had any other assignments. But the one assignment I remember was to try to memorize the books of the Bible. Now, I did not put a lot of effort into it, except on the walk between school and church. Now, needless to say, when I only devoted myself on that walk while I'm trying to, you know, not fall over cracks in the sidewalk and stuff, and I have a Bible, I'm trying to memorize these books, needless to say, I did not very successfully memorize the books of the Bible during that confirmation class. As reflecting on it, and there's a reality that there are many 4K and 5K students here at Freedens who know the books of the Bible much better as 4 and 5K students than I knew them as a 7th grader after the confirmation class. So that's the second thing I remember about the class. The third thing I remember is that as I was studying with the pastor, I kept hearing the word Zion. What in the world is Zion? It was puzzling to me. And so at some point, I asked the pastor what Zion means. And all I know is that whatever explanation I got didn't actually help my understanding one bit. And so this morning... I want to do my best in a concise manner to explain Zion. Because perhaps you've read the Bible, or perhaps you've heard that word, but you, like me in seventh grade, don't really know what it means. So let me explain Zion. Mount Zion represents God's presence, the place where God is king. Originally, Zion referred to Jerusalem, and especially the Temple Mount. In the end, it is synonymous with heaven. And if we turn to Jesus, we experience Mount Zion. Now let me expand on this a little bit. I put this on the screen so you can write it down. If you want to remember it for the future, if someone asks you what is Zion, you can explain it. Let me expand on this a little bit. Zion was a section of Jerusalem that King David conquered around 1000 BC. And that's, that's the time when Jerusalem, the city, became part of of Israel. As Israel was expanding, it, it, it took on Jerusalem. And pretty quickly, the entire city of Jerusalem became known as Zion, especially the part where the temple was, which was the highest point in the city. Now perhaps you've heard songs that sing about marching to Zion. Songs about marching to Zion are based on psalms in the Bible. These are psalms that over the course of many centuries, Jews would sing as they traveled to festivals in Jerusalem. They would sing marching to Zion. You can read about this in the Psalms, especially Psalm 120 through about Psalm 135. These are Psalms about marching to Zion. Even at that time, Zion also took on a symbolic and spiritual meaning, representing the presence of God, for God is king. And so that's the explanation I wish my pastor would have given me when I was in seventh grade. And that's a little snapshot of Zion. Now let's turn our minds now 
back to Hebrews chapter 12, to these two mountains. Remember that Mount Sinai represents fear, exclusion, and death. In contrast, Mount Zion is a place of joy and life. We see in Hebrews it's described as a place where angels are celebrating and where people are redeemed in the presence of God. It's a picture of heaven. Now, picking up in Hebrews 12, 23, it says that if our faith is in Christ, we have come to, quote, God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And we see here that, that God is described as judge of all. You know, in God's courtroom, we are all guilty of sin. But Jesus can be our defense attorney where the blood of Jesus can cleanse us, making us perfect and whole in God's presence, giving us a confidence with God rather than fear. And so this passage is presenting us with two paths that both promise to bring us to God. The path of legalism or the path of Jesus. They both promise us to bring us into a relationship with God, but only one path really will lead to God. Only one path really will bring true life. And Hebrews has made it clear that that path is not legalism. That path is not adherence to the Jewish law. That path is through Jesus. In fact, the very next verse, verse 25, it says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking and saying, stay close to Jesus, that theme that's reverberated throughout Hebrews. It says, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's talking about the events at Mount Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, there's a lot in this passage. But the thing I want to point out here is that what we choose in terms of legalism Versus Jesus has eternal consequences. That those verses I just read are kind of ratcheting it up, the importance of, of the decision that we have between legalism and Jesus. The reality is we cannot choose both legalism and Jesus. I mean, there are many Christians who, who live and think as if they can choose both. You know, I'm a Christian, they think, and, and they live in a way that promotes legalism in terms of this long list of do's and don'ts. But Jesus and legalism are mutually exclusive. They operate from different paradigms. Now, the verses I just read make it clear that everyone will stand before God in judgment. And if you're depending on your legalism, meaning your rule following and your good works in order to earn favor with God, then you will be judged by the law. And in that case, you will receive only cold, hard justice. You will be excluded from God forever. And this shows that God really is scary. If people don't have Jesus 
as part of their lives. That's what, part of what this passage is trying to show, that without Jesus, God is scary. He is a consuming fire. But for those who turn to Jesus, they have Jesus as their defense attorney. Jesus has, has paid the penalty that they, that we deserve for our sin. Therefore, if our faith is in Christ, we will be judged not on the basis of what we have done, but what Jesus has done for us. We will be judged on the basis of grace, which yields an infinitely better outcome. So here in Hebrews, the author is warning the Jewish Christians as well as us. You know, don't go back to that Mount Sinai way of living. The way to joy in life, the way to God, is found through Jesus and Jesus alone. Now we're talking today about legalism versus Jesus. So it's saying, as I said throughout Hebrews, don't turn away from Jesus. Keep following Jesus. But in closing, I want to share three reasons why legalism is bad. I mean, hopefully you've already seen a glimpse of it. But I wanted to share a little bit more about legalism. Because we are so prone to falling back into legalism. So let me share three reasons why legalism is bad. First of all, legalism promotes spiritual superficiality. It promotes spiritual superficiality because when we have a legalistic mentality, we're focused on following the rules. And this makes us self-conscious about what others think about us. You know, do we stack up to the rules or not? A legalist will frequently ask themselves, what will others think of me? What will others think of me? I mean, this is a very common mentality that people live with. But you talk about breeding insecurity. When we're focused on what others will think of us, it's inevitable that we're going to be insecure. And uh, this mentality also breeds spiritual superficiality. Because if we're struggling or if we're immature spiritually, we can still put on a good front by following whatever rules we think are important to those around us. And then we can still look good on the outside. We may even get some pats on the back about how godly we are when in fact what's happened is we put on a good front superficially, but what's inside doesn't match what we're presenting on the outside. But that's what legalism breeds is a spiritual superficiality. And Jesus addressed this frequently in his ministry. For instance, in Matthew 23, Jesus called out the Jewish leaders for their spiritual superficiality based on legalism. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Legalism promotes spiritual superficiality. Now, a second reason why legalism is bad is that legalism promotes divisive judgmentalism. Divisive judgmentalism. Because when we're focused on a list of do's and don'ts, we'll inevitably evaluate others according to our list of do's and don'ts as well. And if other people don't live up to the expectations that we have to our list of do's and don'ts, our rules of right and wrong... And it's practically inevitable that we're going to be looking at them and treating them in a condescending manner. This dynamic is incredibly prevalent in our culture today, which shows that, in a sense, legalism 
is at work well beyond Christianity as well. Because so many people have their mental list of do's and don'ts. Their mental list of rights and wrongs. And they're ready to throw stones at everyone who disagrees with them. And unfortunately, this judgmental mentality can infect Christians as well, causing many Christians to act more like that pseudo-Jesus in the Chinese textbook than the real Jesus presented in Scripture. I mean, the world doesn't need us to throw the first stone at them. And other Christians certainly don't need us to throw stones at them. We must understand that legalism of all sorts, including toward other Christians, promotes divisive judgmentalism. So legalism, it's bad in so many different ways. One other thing I want to point out is that legalism demotes Jesus. It ends up eclipsing Jesus, and it ends up pulling people's focus off of Jesus. I mean, think back to that Chinese textbook that I shared about earlier. I mean, it had a snapshot of Jesus, but one that was distorted. It presented a Jesus who knew nothing of grace and mercy, but only of cold, hard justice. So it begs the question, what do you think those Chinese students and teachers will think of Jesus if that textbook is their only exposure to him? What do you think? You know, in many ways, because of the culture in which they're living, they'll probably actually think that Jesus did the right thing because they live in a culture that values absolute adherence to law and order. So odds are good they're actually going to think, well, Jesus did the right thing. And from a legalistic perspective, Jesus did the right thing in the Chinese textbook. From a legalistic perspective, stoning that woman to death was the right thing to do. From a legalistic perspective, Jesus did the wrong thing in the Bible by showing her grace and mercy. But in the textbook and in legalism, Jesus loses much of his beauty. He does, and that's what I think you know, the Chinese students and teachers who encounter Jesus through that textbook, if they don't have other experience with Jesus, that's what they're going to lose. They're going to lose out on the beauty of his grace and mercy because when Jesus is a legalistic type of person, he becomes a taskmaster, a judge, someone who will chastise you for misbehaving, and also he will become a reason for being harsh toward others. But this is not who Jesus is, because Jesus is a man who shows grace. This is why in John 3, 17, right after the classic verse about God so loving the world, it says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds of people, people whose lives are all messy and messed up, it didn't say that Jesus judged them or criticized them, or condemned them. No, it said that he was filled with compassion. But in legalism, the real Jesus gets demoted in favor of rules and laws. Now, Hebrews 12 it presents us with two options. Legalism or Jesus. Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. When we choose the way of Mount Zion... We're following the way of Jesus in spirit and in truth. We're elevating Jesus. We're making sure that Jesus is seen as he really is as we choose to base our lives and our relationships and our ministry on grace. 
Now, some people get worried that when we focus on grace, we're getting too soft on sin. Paul actually addresses that in the book of Romans. Because when we understand the gospel, it can appear as if it's a license for sin. Gospel is not a license for sin. There are still reasons for following Jesus, still reasons for obedience, but it's not based on the fear of judgment. But still, some people get worried that you know, this view of grace is too soft on sin. But Jesus provides us with the model in John chapter 8. Because John 8 presents us with this woman who is caught in an obvious sin. She is guilty. You know, religious leaders both then and still now would generally be repulsed by this woman. But rather than judging her according to the law and condemning her, and rather than demanding that she change before he shows kindness to her, Jesus shows her grace and he redeems her. And it's after he gave her grace, not before, that he calls her to conform her life to God's ways and God's will. This is a grace that transforms and brings life and joy. This is the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you treat us with grace. We recognize that you are just, that our Heavenly Father is just, that one day we will all stand before him in judgment. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give us grace, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. That is a gift, that's a grace that we do not deserve. We deserve, Lord, cold hard justice. But we're thankful for your mercy and grace that you extend to us. And Lord, I pray that you will give us mercy and grace then to extend to those around us. Yeah, we live in a world that's messy. A world where there's a lot of anger, a lot of animosity. Where it gets tricky to figure out how do we apply biblical principles. But Lord, one thing that is crystal clear is the importance of showing grace and mercy. Of not falling into a legalistic mentality that makes us judgmental. And it makes us less than what Jesus was like. We thank you, Jesus, for the model that you have shown us and for the grace that you've given us. We are undeserving, but Lord, I pray that each of us will be grateful and that we will receive your grace with open and willing arms and hearts. We thank you for your love, mercy, and grace and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.